N-E-S at Pacifica.org. And you're listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is now 3 p.m. Stay tuned to Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money. Every Friday, happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. I have so many loose ends today. I got some calls from listeners. Anyway, uh, I just wanted to say um, one of the calls I got was about weapons, this business of the weapons. I, I never quite know what to say about weapons. Uh, you know, I think it's a subject about which reasonable people may differ. Uh, uh, Fidel Castro always said that he left his citizens armed. They had weapons, he said, so he could assume that they wanted him in power. Oh, yes. Uh, who has the weapons? Has, yes. Who's got the army? Okay. I'm going to leave that one up in the air because it's so painful. Uh, there's an article about law enforcement here that I wanted to uh, mention again. I had it on, uh, let's see, in my little bundle last week, and I just wanted to mention it again because somebody asked me about it. It was just an article I found that compared the situation today with the situation back in 1967, it's called Black and Blue, Black and Blue, Then and Now, and again, it is about the weapons, it's about law enforcement, and uh, if you are the sort of person, if you're a school teacher, maybe you need one short article that's clear and succinct, uh, one that ends, yes, it says, what looms behind this country's gunslinger mentality is a prison gray machine. You will find this article black and blue in the July issue of Vanity Fair and the pictures at the top of the article show you the difference a uh, half a century. James Wolcott has written this uh, article under these Swell pictures of the police and the uh, young black men. Uh, picture down below is 2015. Today, today. Our culture. Yes, indeed. Uh, <laughs> death culture. Actually, I was thinking the, the gloomiest thing on television this week. I, I just mention it for those of you 
book and take it, is a show about guns called Requiem for the Dead. It's on HBO. I certainly don't recommend it for children because it's too heartbreaking. It's an hour and a half showing uh, the people who have died, and uh, I guess more from accidents than from uh, homicide, but just awful stuff. Uh, anyway, uh, it seemed like a good idea, I guess, to to show the public. Uh, let's see, 32,000 a year is the average number of deaths, 88 deaths a day. <coughs> and while I watched it, I thought, uh, why don't they put this on the evening news every night? You remember uh, back in the day, they used to put, uh, oh, you know, uh, half a dozen, two or three uh of the fallen, let's call them the fallen, the uh, soldiers, the men and women who died uh, in this war, the Iraq war. I think that was the one last. They did the tolling of the bell and uh, they kept, I think it was silence, yes, silence. And we saw the pictures of these mostly young people. You saw their face for a moment. Uh, and yes, it was moving in a way, but as I say, half a dozen uh, faces don't exactly compare to 88 a day. Never mind, I just mentioned that for those of you who like to keep track of <laughs> yes, the television coverage of our death culture, our violent culture. Actually, uh, last week, I was caught short because I was trying to express my hopes that our president, Barack Obama, has come to the party, especially on the race issue. He's finally free to say some of the things he really believes. Gotcha. He used to, well, in the beginning, he tried to be impartial. I don't know how, how he managed it, but he managed to say nothing one way or the other. But finally, just recently, he said that racism has nothing to do with being polite. He even used the N-word. Uh, he can do that because uh, he's half black. He seems ready to step up to the plate and talk about this stuff before it's too late. Uh, actually, the ugly voices in the air uh, just lately yelling about the next election give me... Uh, sense of, uh, well, they, oh, they, they, they make me think how nice it would be to be without any media for about two years. Yes, just not to have to hear those infantile idiots. You know, the ones who are saying they will fight to the death for their right to fight f to the death. I think that our president, Barack Obama, is finally uh, at the pinnacle of his, uh, what do you call that, his, his, um, his, his moment, his, uh, his, it's like an actor, you know, when he finally gets to play Hamlet. I don't know how else to describe it. Uh, uh, he got to the White House, he did it, and he survived. Uh, now, just lately, he's been putting in popular uh, appearances. Let's see. 
he's even I, I love him when he goes to the uh, stand up shows and actually when he goes to those roasts he's a, a pretty good comedian I, I oh, oh, hope he gets a TV show when he leaves the White House uh, he appeared on a comedy show just uh, recently that was a knockout he interviewed um, the BBC's David Attenborough uh, David Attenborough uh, came to the White House. This was his 89th birthday. And uh, Barack asked questions like a good, thoughtful student. And both men said all the right things, all about uh, how we could save the earth if we just put our minds to it. Political will, you know, survival of planet Earth. They reminisced about their childhood days at the seashore, those coral reefs. Ah, I always remember La Jolla in 1941 down in Southern California. Oh, golly. Ah, I don't want to think about the last time I was there in 1974. Ah, well, can't bear, can't bear to think. All those great golden perch when I was a little kid, uh, Eight, nine, ten years old. They're actually goldfish, a foot long. Uh, but that was then. Uh, Barack told David Attenborough that his mom, Anne, you remember, Anne Dunham, she actually, her name was Stanley after her father. Stanley Anne Dunham. They called her Stan the Man. She told Barack that he was a calm, calm baby and person. Because during her pregnancy, she had uh, gone down to the seashore in Hawaii there. She sat by the sea. I don't think she used the word meditated. It wasn't fashionable then anyway. Uh, Anne Dunham. She married a student from Kenya, you remember. She was still in her teens. Uh, I looked into Barack Obama's autobiography last night. I kind of felt uh, felt I should go back and look at his earliest work. Uh, his other books are all very well, pol- politics as usual, but uh, I'm really, really impressed with his, uh, his autobiography. It compares, definitely compares, with the other literary literary biographies. Richard Wright, back in the very early 20th century, his book was Black Boy. Native Son came later. That was a protest novel. But Black Boy is the very moving autobiography by Richard Wright, the one, you know, where he gets an orange for Christmas. James Baldwin's book, is mid-20th century, my favorite, favorite. Go tell it on the mountain, James Baldwin. Wrote that the church, the church, the black church, that was his sanctuary. Saved him from the street, from the hustlers and pain of the street. He became a minister, had to quit that and become a great writer. Anyway, I love Barack's book, uh, he talks about redemption. Would you believe? Talks about redemption that he was looking for when he became a community organizer. Would you believe you can get redeemed? 
by going out into the community and trying to help. Uh, <laughs> anyway, there's a story in the book oh, about the N-word. Yes, he, uh, he uses the N-word, Barack does, to tell a story about his father, his father, you know, the uh, father from Kenya. Uh, stories about his grandfather, Stanley Dunham, a veteran of World War Two. I want to read you this little story because it's so funny uh, and so contemporary. Oh, does anything ever really change? Anyway, here it is. Uh, he's telling his story. Uh, let's see where it is here. It's on page 10 of Barack's autobiography. And he writes as follows. That my father looked nothing like the people around me, that he was black as pitch, my mother white as milk, barely registered in my mind. In fact, I can recall only one story that dealt explicitly with the subject of race. As I got older, it would be repeated. Uh, as if it captured the essence of the morality tale that my father's life had become. According to the story, after long hours of study, my father had joined my grandfather, that's Ann Dunham's dad, and several other friends at a local Waikiki bar. Remember, we're in Hawaii now. Uh... They were eating and drinking to the sounds of a slack key guitar when a white man abruptly announced to the bartender, loudly enough for everyone to hear, that he shouldn't have to drink good liquor, liquor, next to a euphemism. The room fell quiet. People turned to my father, expecting a fight instead. My father stood up, walked over to the man, smiled, and proceeded to lecture him about the folly of bigotry, the promise of the American dream, and the universal rights of man. <laughs> Gramps would say, now this fellow felt so bad when Barack was finished, that he reached into his pocket and gave Barack a hundred dollars on the spot that paid for all our drinks and pow-pows for the rest of the night. And your dad's rent for the rest of the month now. Uh, Barack Obama goes on to write, he says, by the time I was a teenager, I'd grown skeptical of this story's veracity. I set it aside with the rest until... I received a phone call many years later from a Japanese-American man who said he had been my father's classmate in Hawaii and he was now teaching at a Midwestern university. Uh, now, this goes on for the rest of the page. This Japanese-American man confirmed this story, which uh, I think it reminded me of what Barack Obama has been trying to do recently. Uh, I think of that absurd scene that he had with Henry Louis Gates, you remember, uh, the gentleman who, <laughs> who was arrested for breaking into his own house, and Barack had to go and uh, sit him down with the policeman who had arrested him and make them shake hands and be good boys. Anyway, uh, 
he goes on here. Uh, in this chapter, he writes, well, he's just coming to the party here. He writes about miscegenation, which, of course, is the marriage of people who um, are believed to be of different races, when, of course, they are nothing of the kind. Anyway, he says miscegenation, the word is humpbacked, ugly, portending a monstrous outcome, like antebellum or octoroon, yes. Remember the word quadroon. There were songs about it. I saw one in an old Betty Davis movie the other day. I'm about to sing it. Good Lord, I'm really, <laughs> really goofy these days. Yes, uh, octoroon. It's a word. Let's see. That would be a person who is one eighth uh, black heritage. <coughs> Thomas Jefferson writes about these things. Uh, and anyway. Uh, Barack says that all this evokes images of another era, of a distant world of horse whips and flames, dead magnolias, crumbling porticos. And yet, uh, he says, it wasn't until 1967, the year I celebrated my sixth birthday, and Jimi Hendrix performed at Monterey three years after Dr. King received the Nobel Peace Prize, a time when America had already begun to weary of black demands for equality. The problem of discrimination was presumably solved. That's 1967, right? Supreme Court of the United States would get around to telling the state of Virginia that its ban on interracial marriages violated the Constitution. Now, in 1960, the year that my parents were married, writes Barack, miscegenation still described a felony in over half the states in the Union in many parts of the South. My father could have been strung up from a tree for merely looking at my mother the wrong way. In the most sophisticated of northern cities... Hostile stares, whispers, these might have driven a woman in my mother's predicament into a back-alley abortion, or at the very least, to a distant convent that could arrange for adoption. Their very image, that is, his parents, their very image together would have been considered lurid and perverse. A handy retort to the handful of soft-headed liberals who supported a civil rights agenda. This goes on, and uh, it is quite sad, some of the things he says. I guess he did get it. Uh, hopefully not until he was old enough to understand it. Uh, he goes on a great deal about his grandparents, saying that... Uh, was very surprised that uh, they answered yes to the question of would you let your daughter marry one uh, says it was a puzzle uh, nothing in their background to predict such a response there were no New England transcendentalists no wild-eyed socialists in their family tree it was true Kansas had fought on the Union side of the Civil War Gramps liked to remind me that various strands of the family contained ardent abolitionists. Uh, when asked 
Toot, that's his grandmother, Tutu. Toot, he called her. You remember, you remember how uh, she died just, just at the time that Barack Obama was elected to go to Washington. That was so moving. Anyway, he says she would turn her head in profile and show off her beaked nose, which along with a pair of jet black eyes was offered as proof of Cherokee blood. Further on, there's more about this, uh, pictures of the Cherokee heritage. He says there was an old sepia-toned photograph on the bookshelf, spoke eloquently of their roots. Yes, Toots' grandparents were of Scottish and English stock. They're standing in front of a ramshackle homestead, unsmiling, dressed in coarse wool, their eyes squinting at the sun-baked, flinty life that stretched out before them. Theirs were the faces of American Gothic, the wasp bloodlines, poorer cousins. In their eyes one could see truths that I would have to learn later as facts that Kansas had entered the Union free only after a violent precursor to the Civil War battle in which John Brown's sword tasted first blood. Uh, let's see, one of my great-great-grandfathers, Christopher Columbus Clark, had been a decorated Union soldier. His wife's cousin. Uh, yes. <laughs> anyway, sooner or later here, Barack talks about... Uh, Relatives being related to Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy. Uh, uh, yes, the full-blooded Cherokees in there. Um, uh, yes, the Cherokee lineage was a source of considerable shame to Toots' mother, he writes. That would be his uh, great-grandmother. Uh, she blanched whenever someone mentioned the subject, and she hoped to carry the secret to her grave. That was the world in which my grandparents had been raised. Okay. Talking about a world in which a woman was ashamed to acknowledge a Cherokee ancestor. That's, well, I guess, I guess it is to be regretted, but it's so strange that Barack Obama's life, uh, is, what is it, symbolic, it can be read as, uh, like our nation's life itself, promises made in the past, promises made uh, in his childhood, yes, his mother promised him that he was going to be something else. Uh, I thought that when the president began to sing Amazing Grace up there at the pulpit, during the funeral of those African-American women and men, uh, those martyrs to racist hatred, uh, I saw this synthesis, this uh, tragic, well, I hope it's not a prophecy of things to come. I hope that it's a eulogy for things that have been... Uh, God is quite a novelist. 
And so especially comforting to me was the way that the president sang off key. Now, maybe that's his English blood. Anyway, Toni Morrison, in her book, All That Jazz, she wrote about the way race has become, uh, what is it, symbolic of so many things, certainly other than biological race, which we now know doesn't exist, uh, DNA and all that. Uh, but color, 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 definitely, that's still a very serious matter in our world. Uh, okay, I think that what I liked about Toni Morrison is she listed all the markers that are attached to race. For me, the basic one she names is class. How the world is made up of haves and have-nots. Those who have a little, those who have a lot. In Barack's autobiography, he studies this situation sizes up the situation, and then he sees what really signifies, and that is power. In this book, this brilliant autobiography, Dreams from My Father, not of or to, but from things I think that his father dreamt, at least that's what he thought, uh, what, he, what he sees there uh, are not... Not so much dreams as, I would say, predictions. He's, he's trying to examine his life, but do it in the ways that most men only do in their old age. This book is definitely literature. Isn't that something? Literature. Uh, <laughs> he digs into his life in Indonesia where he uh, was with his stepfather, Ah, let's see, age 10. Uh, His four years in Indonesia were really, really an education, uh, especially in this business of uh, the rich and the poor. Took him a long, long time to get it. Uh, I think this is not a memoir, folks. This is not, not the kind of book that some of our presidents have dictated. Yes, uh... I think the thing to do when you're reading it is to try to remember that he's talking about the time when he was, oh, my favorite bits. He was about 22 years old. He's having what I would call a mid-youth crisis. He's changing schools going from Occidental to uh, to uh, Columbia. That's, that's the biggie. Uh, <laughs> these wonderful things. He says he... He uh, has been calling himself Barry, and uh, he uh, is having this existential crisis, and all of a sudden he becomes Barack, Barack Obama. We have portraits of his friends who are going on other paths, very, very painful um, my favorite bits, I wish I had time. There are four bits that I wanted so much to read to you. Uh, he went to see Entosaki Shange's play for colored girls who had considered suicide when the rainbow is enough. The woman that takes him to see this play is someone who's working with him as a community organizer, and he he confronts the incredible 
pain of the lives of these women he's working with in down there in the south side of Chicago. And, uh, <laughs> yes, existential angst. We're here in the late 1970s, earlier. Oh, well, I just don't have time to read you the funny stuff about when his mother took him to see Black Orpheus. <laughs> but he came out of Entosaki Shange's play for colored girls with a whole new spin on the lives of black Americans. Uh, yes, the end of the play, he quotes, I found God in myself, and I loved her. I loved her fiercely. Once again, this book is Barack Obama's Dreams from My Father. Uh, definitely a work of literature, not not to be overlooked, people. This one belongs on the shelf. This has been Jennifer Stone. Be back on the air next week. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Friday, July 3rd at 7 o'clock p.m. You're invited to join us live on Full Circle. People nationwide will be beginning their 4th of July weekends, kicking off on the 3rd with barbecues, fireworks, and cargo shorts. As many prepare to celebrate the independence of America and commemorate freedom, Full Circle is taking a moment to slow down and talk about incarceration. The issue of incarceration and treatment of prisoners is paramount to a nation that fancies itself a world leader. It will feature conversations with formerly incarcerated individuals as well as people who work with and serve men and women in prison. You can listen as we visit the issue of incarceration and freedom on Friday, July 3rd. Full Circle is produced by the First Voice Media Apprentices and airs live at 7 o'clock p.m. every Friday night on 